and welcome to No Direction, your number one source for Pathfinder news, reviews, and interviews. I'm Esther. And I'm Navar. And today, we are so excited to be joined by Tan Shaohan, who is a freelance designer and consultant who has worked with Paizo on several different products. And today, we are going to be diving into some of his work for Paizo with the recent Impossible Lands book. Shaohan, welcome to the show. Yes, welcome. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Nova. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to be able to talk more about uh, my work and also talk about the Impossible Lands uh, in general. Yeah, I guess a little bit about myself. I've been playing Pathfinder since, well, Pathfinder 1. I was doing mostly, well, you know, it's the huge anything goes kitchen sink setting that it was like, all right, uh, a friend would like to be a gunslinger and I would like to summon a spirit. And then the last friend would say, uh, could I just be a fighter? And then we're like, yeah, you know, I stopped playing a lot of like the, I guess the D&D likes, the D&D finders for a while. And then when the Pathfinder 2 playtest uh, was being called out, uh, some of my friends were like, hey, we'd like to try this because uh, uh, they said, uh, you could you could play this and figure out whether it's uh, your kind of jam. And I tried it out and I was quite happy with it. I was, I never really got to do much inside it because the playtest had eight players and I didn't think we playtested a lot of like individual stuff. But that got me interested enough with the game. And the first adventure path, I think the one with the Hell Knights, right? The the one with the hill. And uh, little did I know that the writer for that, Elena uh, Faron, would basically I'll end up working so closely with her on the other projects. And that would, of course, the first big thing I worked on for, for Paizo was actually this project, The Impossible Lands. Before that, my work had mostly been for, I think, the Ruby Phoenix, I think it was. I wrote something on the Jiangsu, the hopping vampire. And I wrote, before that, the there was the Bestiary Tree Project. And I think uh, Liz Liddell had put a very nice shout out on Twitter. Like, hey, anybody who's from like AAPI backgrounds or global non-Western backgrounds, especially people from Asian and Pacific Islander backgrounds to do something for an upcoming project and that turned out to be the best theory tree. I ended up doing nothing related to my ethnic, cultural or social heritage, but then it was uh, also a very kind of like a eye-opening experience to go in and work on a couple of monsters. And that's how I kind of fell into this, I guess, this rabbit hole and ended up working on a big book like The Impossible Lands. Yeah, that's actually my biggest book with Paizo to date. And so personally, it's a huge milestone as well. Yeah, that's really cool. I think it is interesting in how you described that and how like the, the stuff from the BCR didn't necessarily tie into your ethnic background. And I'm curious too, like as we get more into Alkenstar, which is something you wrote as well, correct? Yes. And how that felt as well. This project, this is a book that Esther and I both really love, and we've talked about a couple times already, but I think Alkinsar is both very fun and, and also stands out in not only in the Impossible Lands, but also in Garund and the continent that it's in. And so I was curious, like for you, what was your perception of like the background materials that you got, the legacy stuff from Pathfinder First Edition, and how much of that did you have to like change because i can read stuff and i can infer this probably had to change when it was written for second edition but i'm yeah, curious yeah. for you like what that was like to be very frank it was very liberating to work on a project of this scope so a lot of my colleagues in the book are of you see the ethnic and cultural heritage has something to do with the area itself whether it's the more south asian sections for example like brian yaksha and his work on his experiences as a 
as a, as a diasporic South Asian American. And then inside that area, which is, hey, hello, there's this uh, island, this whole thing about spirits and jinns and ifrits inside there. For me, basically, I'm a Southeast Asian Chinese guy. So it's kind of like, well, there were historic, like, I mean, of course, you can say the Chinese-African relationships are very close today, especially in the 21st century uh, business relations. But uh, I didn't bring any of that lived experience into in, in, into it. And I think it's because, as I say, like, Alcan Star kind of really pops out. It's like everything there is like, all right, so we have this, we have these two arc majors who really have kind of like this uh, doom tragic romance hatred rivalry <laughs> thing going on. Yeah. That, kind of, that kind of sets the gravity for everyone, right? And then like every, yeah, yeah. everybody else is like, okay, like you, you're having this like, big war and then we've got this uh, scarred waste. And so there wasn't really anything that I could draw from, I guess, like history that were mapped closely to Alcan Star. And even the name Alcan Star itself, I was like struggling with it. When I say it, it was very freeing, it comes with all the problems of freedom, which is, what the hell do I do, right? So I think some of the questions I had in my head was, shouldn't this be in Arcadia? Like, you know, like basically mm-hmm. because, of all the, because of all the cowboy and the powder keg things. And so I ended up really trying to go very far away from the source material. From first edition, I did work with the adventure, which is the Warden's Reborn Forge. I worked a lot with that one as a basis. That's the adventure in which uh, basically there's a bunch of the robots, the clockworks kind of like uh, go out of control and it turns out to be some shady uh, industrialist plot and then there's some political intrigue and there's some, you have to go down, hunt down somebody, fight some mutants and it's a very Pathfinder one, uh, Pathfinder society kind of adventure. So that one had a city gazette here and I kind of worked with it and there was also a huge problem because I cracked my head over this was uh, the geography of the city. It just doesn't make sense. So like, uh, <laughs> like uh, I, I think, I think, I think like there's one particular area which I think the gun works. Like I think different sources place the gun works in different places. Sometimes mm. the river is to the left, the river to the north. And I just looked at all the contradictory materials and I kind of like started stalking all the reddits, everything like seeing whether anybody had uh, thought about these things. And everybody's consensus was addition drift or you know it's fantasy, who cares? Oh, it's the mother yeah. ways, anything can happen. And <laughs> I wasn't very satisfied because I was being paid to make the new thing look nicer, right? So yeah. essentially I decided, all right, I'm going to take uh, a bit of the gunpowder states of like, uh, I mean, in Turkey and in Morocco as a kind of an influence, even though that's not actually very geographically accurate to the area. Uh, because I was like, all right, uh, so we have guns, or right? I don't want to lean into cowboys and settler colonialism. But then, of course, my country, I come from Singapore, we have very, very close similarities and defense links with, for example, countries like Israel, which are heavily armed microstates inside a place of perennial tensions. And so that became a big influence for Alkenstar. It's like, if you look in the Alkenstar section, there's a lot of uh, my attempts to I'm not sure whether it kind of works out in the end because I, I remember feeling a bit worried. I was thinking, instead of guns being the main way that this nation-state will actually deal with things, everyone can see the guns, but it will actually use economics and politics and manipulation to basically survive. And so basically it became a bit of international relations. I, I was kind of doing a bit of Cold War things. I think I had one section where there were runaway diplomats from Gap running away from Gap's waking up and like hiding in an area and trying to sell secrets to next so that they could keep a very tenuous peace. And so I was going for this whole 1950s, 1960s, like the spies on the ground are closer to each other than they are to the handlers. I was trying to go for that kind of intrigue, Alcan Star. And I was also trying to go with a bit of the 
migrant narratives, I think, especially for a metropolitan city that when I was thinking, who the hell would want to go to Elkin Star? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, like, like one, like, 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 it's a bit, you know, like, uh, if we don't look too closely at the concept, it works because it's like, yeah. all right, you know, we have technology. It's like, and then there's a bit of this, you know, like uh, the whole history of science. There's a, there's a very wiggish, bro dude energy of like, you know, with technology, I can overcome the environment. I can master the world. And then that could work in the 21st century, early, early 2000s. But right now when the summer civil it's like you know it's like it's like yeah. a, it's not a very good message i feel to echo necessarily and unfortunately i felt like i was going against the wave because i think most of the fans that i observe quietly when they like Arkansas, a lot of them like this yeah humanity we can fight mutants and magic with our guns and i didn't really know how to play with it so i kind of worked with my descriptions and my items extremely i would say cynically but i kind of put in a bit of a almost like a cyberpunk, a clock punk back to the city. It's like, there's all these things on the, on the present. It looks really nice, but there's a lot of social manipulation behind the scenes. There's a lot of ethnic tensions. There's new religions that form out. And I put in a cheeky little thing because I ended up writing for the giants and the mutants as well. So I put in a theological similarity between Alkansas' religion as well as the giants' religion to be all about uh, manifest destiny. It's like, oh, we survived. We made it. We're here. Uh, we, we, we deserve to be here. Uh, and if you want to come and join us, you have to, for the giants was become stronger and bigger for the, for the Alkansarites. Uh, Alkansari was, you have to basically become useful to the core algorithm. You have to be useful to the core clock mechanism. So I had a lot of fun writing it. And I think it was the most sci-fi thing that I've done in any kind of, because it's like, I was okay, it's high fantasy. It's impossible. And it's just like, uh, essentially you have necromancy, you have wish, wish powered magic. And what do these people have? So I had, a very very high level social engineering and kind of like a consolidation of resources and inside there i tried to put in something about the original ustradi tribes that live inside there, the clans and tribes so i put in a lot of things about from what i understood about uh, hospitality i put in a bit of islamic inspired uh work inside there as well and that was the part that i was a bit worried about because like uh, would that be currently with the in our world right now it's like especially for example you have a lot of people being worried about okay if this thing too culturally alien it's like you know screw it this is supposed to be the deserts and supposed to be the impossible lands I think I should basically put inside thing that nods at it without being a more orientalist Arabian Nights kind of thing right yeah, so so that, that's my open style it's a bit of a hodgepodge of, of things yeah <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it works. I, I, I do want to say that like upfront, I think it does work. And I think it is interesting though, like as, you know, as I'm going through it, that's one of those things is like anytime, what I think is special about like Garund and the Impossible Lands and like a lot of these areas like Tian is coming out soon is the representation that they bring. So it's always fascinating when it's like the most important figure in the history of this place, because we wrote it in the first edition is this white guy. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I guess, how did we get here? Um, so I think like in the way that you wrote it, I think that, that it, it lends itself to making a lot of sense for, for the story of what we're, what we're looking at for the new canon. And yeah, and it is like it, you know, it's one of those things I think we've learned, Esther and I, over the process of doing some of these is like, sometimes it is, it's like Paizo's going to make a lot of changes and they're doing a lot of work, I think, to improve a lot of stuff, but they're also... A, things that for whatever reason are still tied to that legacy that they're going to hold on to. And I think that you, in my opinion, handled it in a very elegant way that allows space for the people that were existing in this place before um, and also explains 
how a person could come in and sort of find this city state and you know turn it into over time what it is today so yeah yeah i was i was going to say one of the things that i remember feeling as i read your version of alkenstar for the first time is that it felt like and unlike the alkenstar of 1e and and more unlike it and like and unlike places that i could think of in our world which i really love because sometimes i feel like i can read about a fantasy location and really clearly trace all of the through lines to the place it was or places it was inspired by which is a beautiful thing and i think a, a wonderful thing in so many cases and also there's something really amazing about reading a setting and feeling like I can't necessarily pick out everything here. And it really does feel unique. I also remember really loving the way you addressed class in Alkenstar and feeling like there was a little bit of a look under the hood of this place that has been made out to be very flashy, very special in some ways, and really special because of the technology they produce because of the guns and kind of seeing the the downsides of that, which I thought was so important. The way that you wrote about workers and the environmental impacts of everything that goes on in the city and around the city is such a necessary part of world building that we don't always get. And I just, I thought that was beautifully done. Thank you. Like about class in Alkenstar, I think like I mentioned that also a bit in the Dongan Ho uh, section. But I think for the real world context behind the scenes is I was approached to work on this sometime. I think I think the pandemic had just uh, come in for a while and the lockdown across like uh, in my place in, in, in where I live was uh, getting pretty pronounced. And so I lost a lot of my jobs. And so I ended up basically kind of like a lot of my friends around me also started losing their work. And so a lot of us became, basically the gig economy was a boom during that time. So I think it was a kind of like for me as a fly on the wall to kind of like document that. And also, you know, like I live in a city which uh, kind of runs off migration. And during certain holidays, like uh, when, when the migrant communities head back home, there's no labor to be found. So for example, during the Lunar New Year, the, the Chinese Lunar New Year, all the migrants from nearby cities who kind of like keep the wages essentially artificially depressed and they work for much lower wages to provide food, provide clean and everything else, construction, they have to go off. And when they head out, suddenly the only thing you can eat is like mega corporation food. It's like McDonald's or you have, you have migrants who are like, you know, screw this, I'm going to work. I'm not going to go back home and visit anyone because it's so expensive to do that. I'm just going to work through this holiday and earn another uh, whatever I can. And so part of that went into the, I guess that worker sensitivity went to Alkenstar's uh, sleeplessness. It's always romantic to say, hey, this is a city that doesn't sleep, right? But then like, uh, when you really think about it, it's like, hey, it's, it's, it kind of sucks to be the guy who's kind of holding, <laughs> holding the place up, right? And it's like, when I visited the States and then my friends bring me around and they ask, so what do you have for like uh, late night foods at, uh, inside this area? And it's pretty much the same as I have in, in here, in Singapore, as well as in Europe, you'll usually be some, usually a deli or a or, or cafe and owned by Muslim migrants. And then they are, they're serving you some variation of flatbread or some variation of noodles. That's basically, these guys are keeping the, the, the grill on 24 hours for anyone to walk in. And at 3 a.m., maybe you got the construction guys going in and they pack their sandwiches and they head out so they can start jackhammering things, right? And that's something that usually, you know, like, for working in the office, white-collar people, they don't want to think about. They don't want to see it because 
it's like a, it's like teleportation. You wake up, you you wash your face, and you end up in office in in the monkey suit, right? And for me, it's like I wanted to kind of like, hey, there's a lot of things going on underneath, especially from where like a lot of times technology looks great, but there's so many people behind it pushing it manually to make it work. And also, I wanted to kind of hint at how why it's attractive to go to Alcantara because from a migration perspective, there has to be an attraction, there has to be a pull factor to Alcantara. And so I was thinking of like maybe you know, this weird rich global global rich who are there because they're like I piss off somebody and I'm gonna hide in a magic date city so that dangerous magic assassins can't kill me. And then you're gonna have like those people running about. What would make someone travel all the way from I don't know, like maybe I I I, I kind of like hinted and wrote that Triatarixia was basically a from Chalex, I kind of wrote that, all right, okay, maybe maybe the push factor is you have devils running the show and then the pull factor is you go to a place where magic is kind of maybe a bit weaker so the devils can't show up. So I had to do a lot of that and that's when I started my, all right, you're going to have a lot of people working there and maybe they're not going to be doing things that they wanted to do back home. But inside here, they reinvent themselves, not necessarily in a way they like, but in a way that allows them to survive and thrive in, 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 in the city. Yeah, so so that was part of the whole worker kind of mindset that I had. And the main analogy for Alkenstar I was thinking a lot was about clocks. I think I ended up reading about clocks so much. I was like, I was going to like uh, shops that sold watches and did repairs. And I was just observing people playing the strings and they were like, okay, is this guy going to buy anything? Or is he just going to watch? Like, <laughs> and, and so I was thinking about, like, you know, like the, there's, there's two sides of Alkenstar. That's the smoke side and the sky side. I was thinking about them being the two sides, the two springs of a watch that kind of makes the whole thing function. And so that was actually the fun part. Like, and as Esther, you said, I don't really think it maps anywhere into a real world city because that's a very fantastic by design kind of thing. Uh, but <laughs> I did feel at some point in time that I was writing for a science fiction uh, setting rather than a high fantasy section necessarily. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Like you talk about like people going to visit Alkenstar, but it's like, yeah, you have mountain range on one side these two empires that are at war constantly, this strip of magical land that will mutate you and, and <laughs> yeah. or kill you. So yeah, going there has to be worth it. And I think that that's a lot of fun. Like, obviously this is a massive section. So it's a lot of fun to see like how much creativity you had and how much creativity you're allowed to use to go into this and turn it into what it is and find those things that fit into into that space. Do you have like a favorite section of Alkenstar that you that you wrote? Like maybe it's something you already talked about, but like something that like really either stands out to you or just something that just like it was just such a joy to write. I, I think like my three things that I enjoyed the most are actually like really small little things inside there. The first one I really enjoyed was you know like the I don't think it's supported in the emergent use of fans, right? Because everybody is like, all right, this is whiskey and whis- whis- whiskey and guns. And I was like, all right, uh, I wanted to kind of like make a nod over to the Islamic gunpowder states of, of, of the past, right? So I was like, okay, the most important drink is actually not alcohol, yay. And then so I put in, essentially, <laughs> I put in a bit of a halal haram kind of like uh, uh, thing inside there of like, uh, is it logical or illogical to have this drink? And because I mean, Coffee culture and tea culture are huge in halal societies, right? In Muslim societies, like uh, for example, here if I was to, I, I live in a my little my my town in particular has like a very high Muslim population, so you know, it's very hard to find a bar. There's like two bars in like the whole town, and the bars yeah. are all in corporate areas because the salarymen and women would want the place to chill after. 
but most of the places we go inside is like soda bars, coffee bars. We have a lot of cafes. It's like too many, uh, like there'll be like what we lack in bars, we have in cafes. So I was thinking <laughs> yeah. a little bit of like, all right, I want to put in that people need energy. And so that one thing I really liked was about the whole coffee. Like the poor end up drinking tea because tea is you just throw it in and infuse the water and you run around. And coffee, you have the whole all right, a bunch of people grind it for you. You have the little mocha pot and then you wait for a while and then you talk to friends. So I reuse coffee and tea as a way to distinguish between the social classes. And that's mm. one thing that I like, like small other things like that. And an, another thing that I liked a lot was about uh, one particular section, I think. It's, I think I wrote about two gnomes. I think there were just two gnome brothers who ran an eatery and a restaurant. And they basically have like a whole ton of stacks of basically... Uh, I put in this... I created this whole thing about whisper sheets and about projections and basically big, da- big data, right? Big data is like basically the Church of Bree is like, hey, we are going to basically predict what parts of the town are going to be dangerous or not. And so I was really thinking about like a lot of the migrant workers that I meet, uh, because I used to work in them. I used to work very closely with migrant workers for a while. So a lot of this also came from, I guess, just uh, daily observation. And so they were yeah. in a restaurant and I was thinking, you know how, like, you know, gnomes, they have this whole uh, need to kind of, chase experiences and passions otherwise they are subjected over to a terrible boredom and wasting disease and i thought like all right they yeah their kind of passion was cooking but the passion was also community and so kind of kind of like they they wanted to kind of like make their little street right they're not going to start a little bit of a better place and so i thought like you know the little cool thing for adventurers there would be you have adventurers come in you can have a nice meal and if you can't pay the full price uh, because adventurers even when they have all the cash in the world, they like to bargain. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an adventurer thing. And so mm-hmm. like, uh, and then I'm thinking this known brothers will be like, the ideal brothers will be like, hey, you know, if you can teach your kids here, like, you know, for the, the, the kids have a lot of opportunities here, you can update their, do, um, t-shirt, mark their homework or something, then we'll give you a discount. And I thought that was a good hook to put in for people. And near that section, I think I written something about how the criminal elements were basically be- destroying such uh, schools because they wanted to recruit the kids for themselves. Because that's mm. one of the ways that gangs work, right? You basically go to make schools unattractive and then you pull the kids over to your side, you give them a bit of cash and then the next thing you know, basically it's a stable source of, of, of manpower. And so uh, I wanted to kind of like put a very street view of like people in the community and I grew up in a community and then the kind of like the soul of the community is sort of like on between two tensions and that's a very adventurable point. Like I think a GM who senses that and wants to tell a story about that could use it to talk a very street level story of like a bit noir, a bit like, you know, a bit, a bit, a bit of like guns and teachers and lessons and things. And without having it being too real world because that could basically change the, the tone of everything. And the yeah. last thing that I like is also, I think the NPC section actually I wrote in the spirit of the Ustradi River because I think like uh, there's a big whole uh, Ustradi River and I think one of the big things is like especially in settings of TTRPG settings people are like alright this place is this is magic magic dead land there can be no magic at all and I'm like uh, no there's got to be like like <laughs> the magic may be gone but then the, the old stories will remain and the present city is kind of like a layer built upon existing things so I put this relationship again with another gnome, Ratpole, I think uh, he's the first edition character who builds a lot of things inside. There are like only two, two or three lines given to him, throwaway lines. But in this one, I kind of like had almost this impossible, semi-dreamlike love relationship between him and the river. The river inspires him. He, he gives 
his his way of courtship for the river is to build a hydroponics plant to clean the river <laughs> up, so to clean yeah, up yeah. pollution. And I thought, all right, that could be a bit of an like you know, it's a anthropo the anthropocene uh, represented instead there of human human like being and the environment being, and then how they kind of relate to each other. So that was a little flourish of. I think a bit more optimism that put himself and start away from all the guns and the smoke and the assassinations. Yeah. So those are the three <laughs> favorite things that I like. I think small, small things. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love to hear that. Like, because, uh, you know, when you have that, the time and the space to write as many words as you wrote, like, I, I love seeing those little things that stand out to you. And I can see like the hooks. Like, I've, so I've recently, and I'm still watching The Wire, which I don't know if you've ever watched it, but you're, as you're talking about like the streets and like pulling the kids off, like, that's what they did. They had like these, eight, 10 year old kids out there just like running around selling drugs, which is awful, but it's also interesting. It makes for a good story. Like that was one of the regarded as one of the best shows on television. But I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like in that same way you can tap into, especially like an early character's adventure to be like, Mm. cool, like this is where we're starting. Who knows where it's going to lead, but here's the thing that you can deal with. And I, I love that kind of stuff. I love those GM inspiration juices that you can plug in there. So, yeah. I love all of that so much. I love the relationship between the gnome and the river, the, the mm-hmm. spirit of the river and the, the cleaning up. That's just a beautiful, beautiful touch. One of the things I really wanted to ask you about, in addition to Alkenstar, was Donganhold, because that's that's something that I feel like hasn't gotten as much attention or love as I really wish it would. So I wanted to just touch on like, what were some of your inspirations for writing about the dwarves of Donganhold? And how did you work through that process as opposed to figuring out the character of Alkenstar? Like, what were your thoughts as you began to create Donganhold? I think uh, one of the big things for me was actually, uh, in terms of visual and phonetic cues, I think King Anong Arunak, to me, like to my ear, I'm like, all right, that sounds, it kind of like evokes a very Thai element to me. And so kind of when I saw some of the visual libraries of like what the Donganho dwarves were looking like, then I also felt a bit like, hey, okay, because in Southeast Asia, especially in the Malay states and the Thai states, there's, there's a whole bunch of like guns that are basically shaped like nagas, basically. There's cannons mm. and guns that shoot like nagas. And so, uh, and a lot of it, of course, came from the relationships between the Muslim kingdoms here and of course the caliphates that had gunpowder and of course also the Chinese relationship with maybe their allies and vassals in the area and passing guns around so I was like hey okay I think I could do that but wait that's a wrong continent but wait this is high fantasy I don't have to put it in TNCR and this was before I was approached to do TNCR right so <laughs> and like uh, and this is like it was like unfortunately uh, I, I live linearly in time I'm not a super position being right. so, so I was kind of <laughs> yeah. like alright I can't, I can't go backwards right and, and in TNCR like basically there isn't really kind of like there is a Thai and place uh, analog inside there and so I kind of like, took a bit of a risk and decided you know what I'm going to kind of like lean very strongly into this kind of like a mainland Southeast Asia kind of a vibe for it. I wanted to kind of like write a lot about how there's a bit of like trauma, I guess, because it's like the dwarves are basically, one of the big dwarf tropes is essentially looking for a home that you cannot find, right, basically. Uh, but then the cool thing about the dwarves of the Pathfinder universe of Gularion is that they didn't actually lose a home so much as they were basically inspired to seek the sky, right? And the big thing that itself points out there was because I think in Lost Omens, in the Legends, I think uh, there's a bit of a reference over to Kai King Target and how he has this regret 
of displacing all the orcs and other underdark kind of beings along the way. He was just stabbing all the darkland creatures and we have this epiphany that we're rich as sky and sucks to be you if you're in the way, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if this was one, it would work because then it kind of like, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a problematic trope, but I do see parallels between that and the mindset of essentially my particular cosmic quest journey crusade is more important than anyone else's experience, right? And if you that's, look yeah, over at... very yeah, uh, Manifest Destiny U- United yeah, States. Yeah, Manifest Destiny. Yeah. And then there's a whole basically living the one to wonder the the, the the deserts of the wastelands and then essentially reaching kind of a divine confirmation, right? And then mm-hmm. so if Elkinstar upstairs is kind of like uh, this whole like you have to work in order to find yourself and there may not be the capital G God in there, but there's a very strong thing there. I thought that it would actually be something which the Dongan Ho has sort of overcome in a way because they've had a much longer time to work with it. They've basically reached a very static stage, all right. So it's a bit like in a war, you have two groups of people shooting each other, and then you you can't you can't go either side. You you're in a safe zone, but then you you ran all the way from a really far place. You killed a lot of people to get to a place where people are not shooting each other, and like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna pull up hole over myself, and I'm going to be like, I'm done. <laughs> but I'm like, what does that do to people? Like, what 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 is like thousands of years of that doing that to the people? And the way that I guess the one E stuff wrote Ansel Alkenstar is being very like almost like I mean it's the super protagonist, right? It's like, you know, he's able to build alliances, make friends. I was thinking, all right, what's the dwarf's angle on it? Why would they put so much energy and invest in this guy? Why would they invest in this city? It's like if they have such a long term perspective, why would they come out of a self imposed, extremely safe uh homostasis to come back over to get shot at the end, right? And I was thinking maybe it's because they can't afford to stay still anymore. Like, there's actually tensions within society. So I wrote in a lot of stuff which was uh, about, I think, I don't want to give any potential platform time to shady, misogynistic demagogues, but I wrote shady, misogynistic demagogues into <laughs> Nongan Ho, in which, like, there's a, there's a lot of, like, ethnic and tensions inside Nongan Ho based on caste rather than class, mm. like, uh, all right, uh, we are suffering here because your ancestors didn't kill enough ox. We are suffering mm-hmm. here because your ancestors ran away from the necromancers, etc. So uh, we're suffering because it's you. And so we have this, essentially, people who are inside there who kind of end up becoming the scapegoats for social tensions. And then we, of course, have the demagogues I was speaking of going over to the dispossessed and saying, you know what, nobody likes you, but I understand you. Would you like to do shady work for me? And this is no <laughs> reference to any men's right activists out there in the world no 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 references all right <laughs> please please do not search them out whoever you listeners are all right so um and because i live in uh i i, I teach in a i teach in a technical school sometimes and a lot of my it's very male dominated it's like 80 percent guys and 80 percent mm-hmm. boys and they sometimes listen to these things a lot they, they unironically believe in the stuff that big technologists tell them that they should follow and i was thinking a lot about uh Dong and Ho as being something in which you have the weight of tradition and you have some innovation that's kind of poor but the innovation itself also generates a bit of a resistance as a paradigm shift and I think I put in a lot of things about merchants about how because mm. guns was going to be their main export and uh, I put in a subplot but I think it got cut in the final thing about how Alkenstar and Dongan Ho have to do a bit of a gun basically you have to sort of like control the you have to control the 
uh, excess uh, of the of, of, of weapons. But at the same mm. time, you want to release a flow of substandard weapons out there so that you set the general product. Then it got a bit shady because it was really pretty much about being an arms manufacturing state. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I kind of softened it by putting in things about cats, I think. I was like, I put in a lot of things about cats. I was like, all right, tonally, this is getting a bit like, this people are very depressed. They're kind, of, mm. they're, kind of, they're kind of stressed out. I need some points of light. And I thought, hey, what if there was a, there was like a, a bit of a cat angel spirit thing that kind of stayed there before the, before things happened. And then it just stays there and then it takes it out there. And then people there have a lot of, there's a lot of mercenaries in Dogan Ho because everyone talks about how Dogan Ho is full of mercenaries. Even our iconic gunslinger is basically, I mean, she's a, She's like, she's like a grandma, right? She's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm retired and I'm off my main adventure. And I'm thinking a lot about, again, like, you know, when you have people who go overseas to work for long periods of time, then in, people miss each other and they project their feelings onto things, right? Correspondences. Like, in the Philippines, people send a lot of boxes back home full of clothes, for things to remember, for the kids and family to know, hey, I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking maybe you have a whole bunch of maybe left behind, like, elderly people, children who project a lot of their missing of their loved ones who went off to be mercenaries into the form of cats, in the form of buildings. And yeah, that's so Dongan Ho. I, I was actually very happy to write it because I have a friends who are huge fans of dwarves and I'm not really a big dwarf fan, but so it kind of gave me a bit of a chance to kind of jump into a sort of yeah. like, what, what would mm. I like to work with it? There's this whole thing also about, I think, what's the name of the orc? White hair, right? Ardex white hair, right? I was like putting a little bit of kin there of like, between Dongan Ho, Elkenstar, and the whole Orc Quest for Sky storyline, the whole Tabafon storyline. And I'm quite glad that Paizo let me throw it out because that's a bit of like a, it's, that's, that's, that's a pretty big one. And I hope that you inspire other GMs, other writers to basically use it and maybe resolve a little bit of the story because if we have a bit of an Orc dwarf piece through Dongan Ho with High Helm coming out, maybe that would move the narrative away from racial enemy narratives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, so one of the things that as I'm listening to you talk about all of this stuff, I am just like curious outside of Paizo and, and writing Pathfinder stuff, like for you, where does a lot of this like knowledge and inspiration come from? Like, have you always been writing and world building and stuff or like, where does the things that you pull from come from in your life to the extent that you're willing to answer that question? Oh, okay. So I'm basically, I'm a... What's, what's the phrase? Recovering academic, yes. So, like, uh, <laughs> basically, I have a I have a on-off love-hate relationship with academia. And I like studying. I like I like reading. I like doing research. I dislike the the industrial and careerist perspectives on it. So I end up kind of collecting a lot of, I guess, information. I kind of tend to do like intense deep dives into subjects, and then I may forget most of the things, but I remember some of the more striking things. And I'm also because I live in uh, kind of a, I guess, a hub zone, basically, uh, in, in, in the world. And so I used to work, as I said, with migrants. So I used to work in basically an NGO. It was basically uh, working for, to represent migrants, migrants who got kind of basically screwed by big corporations. So uh, the most common kind of thing that I would have to do is maybe somebody who's working in physical labor, maybe like a electrician who's working on repairing air conditioning units outside or maybe a, uh, maybe a person is just like doing carpentry work and you have big blocks of stuff falling on them they get injured and so the usual legal process that will happen is they're supposed to basically head over to the doctor the doctor basically assesses them they get the insurance payout and then 
uh, that's it, right? But the in the world that I lived in, what happened was they go to the doctor, the doctor would, maybe a person has two fingers severed off and the, person, the doctor would say, all oh, right, this is just a light injury, uh, give you some aspirin in two days so that the insurance, the people does not get started. Because once that comes in, then the next batch of workers who comes in, the insurance company will increase the premium I mean, it's really shady. So the yeah, the, yeah. the big the big four, the auditors, the 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 the, the, the hospitals, construction companies are all kind of in on it together because they're doing batch business, right? And in Singapore, uh, everything is kind of like a very legal and everything, so everyone thinks this won't happen. But it happens a lot. And when I had this job, it it was very it was my real life film noir moments, basically. <laughs> okay, my 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 detective <laughs> genre life is like a, I had a lot of observations and. I work a lot with mostly people from India, Bangladesh, and China who were basically here. A lot of them were, for lack of a better word, they were essentially, some of them were illiterate. They couldn't write their names and so I had to write them, help them write their names and I had to arrange wakes, funerals, I had to go to courts, everything. So I think like uh, working in that kind of like uh, gave me a lot of experiences and observations and at the same time I was also running a kind of, uh, I was helping to run a, some working in some projects where we food for usually older and more impoverished people in the neighborhood because with gentrification, it becomes very much of like a, suddenly you have people who live in that whole area and now suddenly they're really poor. So that was the that was, that was a bit of it. And academic life, yeah, like I just read a lot, thought a lot and studied a lot. And so that's where a lot of my work came in from. I'm really struck by the complexity and depth of your experiences, which influence the complexity and depth of your world building process, which I think is an amazing thing because we live in a really complex world. And as you were saying, like you, you tempered the more depressing or realistic parts of Hold with the cats. I really love that because it's very true to life in a lot of ways. You know, we live in terrible places where terrible things happen. And yet we have animals that we love. We attach meaning to things. And I think that just all of that comes out so much in this whole section of Alkenstar and Dog and Hold and everything there. And it's really special. It's it's really an immersive experience for me to read it. And I think that's something you don't always get in high fantasy writing or even in a, a TTRPG setting. So I just love the way you were able to do that. Oh. Thank you, Esther. I think like actually a lot of that possibly comes in because I before I worked a lot in I guess the our industry's version of a triple A project basically in for Paizo. A lot of my work was I think the more indie or uh, kind of like the OSR adjacent. So there's a lot mm. more space usually inside there for random bursts of like you know sincerity, intensity, and it's a very kind of like a what I'm just really glad that. Uh, my work for Paizo kind of was able to kind of keep that. And I, I also think the hiring process, the recruitment process, like so many of my contemporaries for this job were people that I was just kind of like stunned to see their work. Even even before this in the bestiary, I think I think there were some people who worked, I think, in I think marine science or something, and they were building this sea monster, and I was just really impressed by it. And it's just one of those things which... I've worked for some companies and I'm told to temper and tone down the maybe the idiosyncrasy of the of the vision, right? Or like, you know, uh don't have too many feels. People people want to have 
people want to have something a bit more, I guess, effervescent, a bit lighter. They don't mm. want to kind of go into things. And I'm glad that uh, this kind of made the cut and that this was like, this was something which is said, hey, yeah, we give you this trust of you can write this huge chunk of two connected cities and have fun with it. I'm so glad they did that. One of the things that I I noticed kind of going back to Hold and idiosyncrasies and cool stuff is I noticed the way you constructed time there and that you had two distinct days, the forge days and the coin uh, days. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how you thought about time passing differently here and the ways that the flow of time changes in Hold. For my own live experiences, like so for example, today is actually a festival that is a Chinese festival right now in this moment we're recording. It's like it's the summer solstice and it's also one of the festivals where basically people do the dragon boat dances, the dragon boat competitions and they eat rice dumplings. And the thing is, I won't remember this time of the lunar time very well through the lunar calendar. I basically have to either check on the internet or I have to ask my elders. Well my elders would know it because uh, it's a lived experience, right? So they, they hearken to a different kind of time away from the Gregorian default calendar, right? And same thing for my Muslim friends is like when it's like the fasting month, then they know they have apps optimized to basically allow them to connect. And when my Muslim friends pray, they, of course, they have to point and uh, try to figure out the direction towards Mecca. So you go to some hotels here, you see there's directions in the, in, in the carpet this way to Mecca and it's like alright so, so so they know which way to aim alright to pray right so and the thing about it is for me I'm interested in space and time in like around us we see so many things right but then like some of us are constructing space time in a totally different way right and then like and I guess you would use the whole this is sacral space and this is like secular space right and I think Dong Ho if you were to I was thinking if you were to be so traumatized and so isolated there was no real moment in time in which everyone's like okay we are now away from our peers there's no real moment that they've arrived at the surface, so they're always in a kind of a liminal state right now. I was thinking that well, given a lot of structure is basically to kind of work with time according to what uh, they remember by, and uh, what and then to kind of have to accommodate to the surface world, to the new people they work with, and work with their time. It's a bit of an attempt to resist the soft colonization of the center of the, of the top world of like work according to our time. Then they're like, all right, we work to your time, but internally, actually, we have our own time. And that's something that has kept us going for long periods of time. And it may have cultural drift because dwarfs in other places may, may not care so much about that. But then, uh, I mean, it's another thing about migrant diasporas, right? They hold on to things which a lot of people uh, may have forgotten because that's what is important to them as a marker of identity. And so I also was thinking a little bit about uh, time because of the Alkenstar aspect of the city of clockwork, putting the literal clock inside there. And I think another thing about time inside there, I think I wrote about food as well. I wrote about forever stews and eternity pots, right? And yes. about like uh, the the thing I like inside there, the, the, the bit of levity I put in there was uh, people throwing food inside there and insulting the the high, high magic empires as being less powerful in flavor, less 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 old, less less esteem in pedigree than their soups, right? It's like so imagine this dwarf carrying a bowl of soup shouting a gap and next like, you know, you you're just like, you know, yesterday's lunch or something, right? And then there's a certain <laughs> defiance in that which moves away from a very a traditional dwarf of like, you know, I'll kill you or cut your head off, etc. And this one is more like, you know, my soup is more powerful than you, which I thought would be a bit way to soften it while still keeping a little bit of it, yeah. But part of my job too is to basically make everything not so 
not so dude bro, not so, yeah, mm-hmm. in a way, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned the soup because I wrote that one down too. I, I loved that. <laughs> and I think it really, it makes them a more three-dimensional culture, more three-dimensional people to have something like that, where it's like, I'm not intimidated by this these great empires because our soup has more history than y'all do. And I, I love the way you articulate that as resisting a kind of colonization and the way you articulate them really keeping to their own sense of time as as preserving their own culture and resisting this outside influence. I'm thinking about that because I observe Jewish time as well as secular time. And I have a calendar um, just off screen that has the Gregorian calendar, but it also has the Jewish lunar calendar Mm. on it. And it's such a different system of time that I'm always in while I'm navigating you know, dominant culture time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought that was just such a beautiful thing to put in here. And it, for me as a player and as a GM, it would create this really beautiful opportunity to think about time in a different way, not only in a fantasy world, but in our world. And I, I love those windows of opportunity that get people thinking a bit more creatively and a bit differently than they usually might. And the way that fantasy worlds invite us into that. And I think there's so many things that you put in this section that really raise those questions so beautifully. So thank you for doing that. It's just really well done. Welcome. I'm very happy to hear that because it's like, while the particularities or experiences and identities might not map exactly the same to each other, but the scope and sense is the same, right? So it's kind of like, if you know, you know, then having to live in multiple times and having to juggle multiple time through time as identity, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one of the fun things about the Impossible Lands as a whole is like you talked a lot about migrant experiences, which is something that many people who will play Pathfinder 2E will never know about or go through, right? But I think that there's something in there where may, you're drawing it from a specific place, but it but it relates to something that is sort of universal, right? And I think that's a lot of fun in the way that so many of these different, you know, countries and and areas that we see throughout the book touch on is that idea of of here's an experience that if you show a little empathy, you can reach out and understand how this can sort of relate to your life or your character or give you inspiration or help you relate to other people. Like I think that's a lot of fun that we can have these books that are game books and 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 be able to draw stuff like that that gives you context for things that you can apply to your to your real life i was kind of nervous because i think like basically i don't really have i guess my name kind of like and my identity is like hey so what are you doing in the impossible land side so i do feel a little bit like that and then i decided to kind of double down with like all right in addition i'm going to take this well beloved clock punk uh, chestnut and i'm going to basically crack it open and deconstruct it and reconstruct it so i did have some concerns about it especially because uh, the adventure path uh, kind of like uh, the art for the adventure path the punks in the powder keg i think that happened around the same time as the as the work so the emphasis that was given with guns and gears as well i think the general marketing strategy for visuals was a lot more towards the uh, you know the wild wild west kind of like uh, with like giant mechanical spiders right so I, I i do wish that at some point in time i had basically maybe put in a little bit more of uh that but i didn't i think like within the confines of word scope i was like all right that's a lot of things to go inside here i do put a lot of different things and i think 
I'm generally happy with it because uh, I, I sacrificed that because I was thinking if there's something that in actual play GMs and home groups will actually work with, it would be that. They will throw in mm-hmm. all the robots and all the guns. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't have to I don't have to put in any anymore. I can season to taste. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, one small thing inside the Impossible Lens that I'm also quite happy to work on uh, connecting with teams is actually the section on the flash swaps. I think the uh, then the extra yes. thing on the flash swaps. <laughs> yeah. And I never kind of like really connected them in my head after I wrote them. And I was like, all right, actually one is about society controlling your mind, right? Then the flash swap is like on a very intrusive level, society controlling your body, your identity. Yeah. And so I kind of like they pair together in a straight rich way. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it, in terms of, of writing the Flesh Warp, like how familiar were you with it before you started this project? Again, it's a bit of like, there's a bit of a semantic uh, drift issue because if I look at Flesh Warp, then I have the soon-to-be excised from canon, Drow, and their Flesh Warping magic in the mm. in the Darklands, which involves some connections to Sin magic. And that was a part that I was kind of like, all right, <laughs> how do I work with that? And there was also yeah. the whole section on, I think, next and their work on creating flash crafting giant monsters and uh, living li- living siege engines, right? And so I kind of like work with this two kind of like uh, things as inspiration as well as as well as the existing ancestry. And I think my main interest in the flash shops was actually a bit about agency, about uh, how do I write a group of people who are not just the other. I wanted to kind of emphasize on, hi, these this are not other, they are centered to themselves and there's a bit of a, they have powers that allow them to thrive and survive as themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that is actually a huge response to the draw treatment in first edition because uh, yeah. the flash swords were just kind of like, all right, this is how we get drier. This is how we get weird aberrations. I was thinking, hey, those guys have feelings too. <laughs> like those, those body <laughs> yeah. horror, the science experiments, they have, they have identities too. So a lot of my flash work came from changing the camera to refocus on how would a drider feel? <laughs> how would how, yeah, yeah. How, how would this guy feel? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that that is so important. Like that there's, we talked a little bit about it, but like the history of these games obviously comes from a place that did not have a lot of consciousness for outside experiences. And so those outside experiences ended up being written in ways that were problematic and offensive and all these other things and so yeah like the bringing that change back around and finding ways to make it fit in a narrative that feels good for players and for readers like i think that's so important and i'm glad that you had the opportunity to do that and and i'm glad that they picked you a person who was able to see like how this how this could be better at and improved in that way so yeah like in terms of the like mechanics side of it and stuff like that, like writing feats and things like that. You know, what did you have experience with that aspect of of writing and um, game design specifically for Pathfinder 2e? So before that, the experience I had was actually and the mechanical side of things was mostly with monsters and creatures. So I had written for a couple of entries for the best theory, and I had written the Jiangsu. So I was basically more in, familiar with. I guess the action economy and flow economy of how the GM facing side of things is like, all right, so what should a creature be doing? And because of that, I kind of deconstructed and worked backwards of like, uh, well, how long should this combat take? And I kind of like work with that as the basis. So for example, one of the things in like, uh, that 
And okay, from RPG, TTRPG design perspective, I guess uh, working on GM-facing things is always a little less uh, scary than working with player-facing things, PC-facing things, because the PC-facing things hold up like entire sections of player experience, right? Whereas GM stuff is like, you can always decide, hey, you know, I'm not going to use this. It's optional. There's so many creatures. Why do I use this? And even if, let's say, there's a monster that's a bit of a mess, uh, at the end of the session, it's over, right? It's like, I, uh, okay, that, that, that monster was weird. Let's not, let's not ever use it again. But if you, <laughs> if you make a spell, for example, so I made some spells for Secrets of Magic uh, as well. I forgot about those uh, cantrips for Secrets of Magic. I made some magic items. And there was a lot of things, like uh, I think like re- responses to those works were that, why are these spells, this could have been feats and things like that. And some people are saying, but we like them as spells because that, mean, that means I don't have to take them as a feat. So uh, I think I made a spell in Secrets of Magic called Approximate in which you can guess, you can approximate the number of items that are inside a certain space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and that came out of working in retail because I lost my job, right? So I was working part-time <laughs> in retail and I was like, having to count the number of, uh, I was working in a Warhammer game store and I was like, Having to count the amount of paint in the in the back room, I was like, "Hey, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if I could magically count how much paint there was inside here?" And yeah. someone said, "Hey, but that's the kind of eye for number speed." So the person who built this doesn't know that anything about the game, and I think it's a fair comment to put. But I do think that there was actually a design space where the country worked uh, rather than simply being a feat, because you may not want somebody to be so well trained in society to be able to do that, right? So over back to Impossible Lands, that was the background I came in. I have some spell design knowledge, some item design knowledge, and some a lot of creature design experience, but very little in the way of player facing like classes and uh, archetypes and paths. So the big one that I think a lot of people were excited about was the Trigger Brand, and that's the one for the Gunslinger from Alkenstar. And yeah, I think feedback for it has been both enthusiastic from some people like, oh my god, I would like to have a gunblade to the most, uh, I guess, the most experienced players will be like, Gunslinger still sucks, man. This doesn't work. Right? <laughs> then then yeah, I'll be yeah. like, then I'll be like, okay, okay. Like, you know, you can't, you can't please everyone. And right. uh, some people are like, you know, this thing is, this thing is weak because it doesn't have a, it doesn't, you can't use it for anything. And I did feel a bit worried about the mechanical aspects because I think I might have like, made it a little, little bit weaker in order to kind of compensate for, I guess, some of the abilities I give it uh, at the beginning, but in mm-hmm. but as I played it more, and it was a very surreal feeling to be able to go to a half and a society table and say, "Hi, can I play something I wrote?" And then and yeah. then I'm like, "Oh no, this is a weird flex." Come on. Then like uh, <laughs> I'm like I'm like, okay, and then I realized, okay, it's quite fun for certain groups of players who like to have a lot of options, but it's not necessarily fun for people who want everything to work in an extremely streamlined, optimized way. And so mm-hmm. that was quite eye-opening to create the trigger brand. For creating the flash warps, that gave me a lot of experience in what Ancestry feet should feel like and what Ancestry basically should be like. I yeah. kind of like got a better sense of that. And I find making Ancestries to be quite fun because they have a, like, a lot of like, you can tell a lot about what the thing is supposed to be mythologically. And this is also the little challenge because we're trying not to be biologically essentialist, right? But then the flash warp mm-hmm. is extremely biologically uh, defined, right? So it's like, uh, right, yeah, what yeah. do I do? And yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was, all those are fun challenges because I, I can basically walk around, crack my head on them a lot. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, I think definitely like the Flesh Warp 
and and writing those answers i think is is something that is a lot of it seems like it'd be a lot of fun and definitely a fun challenge for those reasons that you talked about because it really is it's like how do you create something that feels good for a player for them to want to choose but isn't overpowered and isn't nerfed and finding that good balance right in between with those feats and so yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that it seems like the editing process and the design process and that stuff all ends up working out. And so, yeah, it's good. But I, I can definitely understand, too. Some fans are just never going to be happy about a certain thing. There's yeah, yeah. No, like the can't win. Trigger man was really eye-opening. It was like, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. So do you, you talked about, like, the pathfinder society did you get to play the flesh warp during that or was it the gunslinger uh, so it was it was supposed to be a society game then when i got mm-hmm. there like the society gm was like i think the society gm had just bought the uh, monsters of myth i think and he okay. was like all right can we not do a society game can we just do something <laughs> i really want to run something for monsters of myth and then to share so i ended up uh, playing a flesh warp magus inside yeah uh, in, mm, inside yeah. Uh, the game and it was funny because I ended up uh, not doing any mega things at all. I just ended up kind of like getting <laughs> ten thousand status effects on me and uh, and saying, "Yay, I'm not dead because of the flash or plus two HP from Ancestry." <laughs> <So strange. laughs> yeah, and that was fun because I ended up like uh, I ended up playing a cataphract flash warp. I think one of the mm-hmm. next the, the 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 design brief was make something that could exist inside next. I was like, "All right, here's a bunch of like basically toy soldier." type uh, entities and I was playing a military deserter from Nex who was like okay I can wear heavy armor and I was going around playing a laughing shadow magus in heavy armor and never using my laughing shadow things and just being hey I have a pocket teleport if I need to and yeah. uh, and I'll use a two-handed sword then I was like wait that, that's like that's a very odd build I said yes but mechanically it works out <laughs> you know I just did the did the raw numbers and like oh no you, now you're gonna bring numbers into it that's I'm like mm-hmm. uh, my personal branding I think in games is uh min-maxing to make janky stuff work rather than min-maxing to make uh, stuff work really well. So I was like, mm. hey, this is this is pretty fun. And I did enjoy playing something that I had a hand in creating. And yeah. uh, I am, of course, going to be... Uh, I haven't had the chance to play a trigger brand uh, much because uh, those society games always end up like, hi, uh, oversubscribed or something. And so maybe one day I'll, I'll, I'll try to see whether the complaints are valid from further testing a very alken sorry <laughs> thing to say <laughs> yeah 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 iterate sure. reiterate yeah 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 incredible uh, esther unless you have anything else i think we can just close out with whatever you know stuff that you want to promote yeah I, I always like to ask at the end is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover yeah mm-hmm. maybe it's like something which is a little bit of like Something that just kind of came to my mind is like something as a freelancer, I think, especially as for me being on another continent on the other side of the world uh, from a lot of my fellow creators, I think one of the things that I enjoy a lot in creating Impossible Lands is so the sense of, you know, like basically freelancing usually is a very solitary process because you have a brief, you have a group of like objectives and then you basically have milestones to hit, right? Uh, but uh, what happens is like for this particular project, that's where I, I think like I met a lot of like uh, individuals whose work that otherwise I would not have been too aware of, and uh, it was able to kind of like from there kind of like build over into a kind of like as a digital, uh, the friendship or acquaintanceship with with individuals. So like for example, like Bashir's work on on that, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of like following up on Bashir's work a bit on on his 
And then I got the chance to meet Bashir at Big Bad Corn last year and play a trial version of his game. Uh, and then yeah. uh, Brian Yaksha is like, a, I'm uh, quite fond of his, uh, of, 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 of his section then also kind of keeping up things. So it's kind of like a, being able to sort of like, I think that's something that uh, I don't really get a chance to experience very much, a sense of, I guess, virtual community. And <laughs> uh, for freelancers, for creators, when I was still more, because I still work in more indie things and it can be very lonely. So it's kind of like, you're like, mechanically, does this, does this D6 dice pool mechanic work? And then if you put it up and then people are like, oh, weren't you part of the discussion we had about D6 dice pools back in 2018? They're like, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or it's like, <laughs> you aren't yes. part of this yeah. secret chat group, all right? And yeah. uh, so I was like, uh, how, why do you bring this up? This is all, we don't talk about it in the this horse anymore, okay? In the, the, the horse runs away with the, with the CD on the back, right? And so <laughs> yeah. being able to kind of work with fellow freelancers and everybody has their own thing and then we sort of see how, I guess the sausage gets made, you get to see how the, the, the loaf of bread kind of like forms up and then the editors, the, the line developers have to kind of push it all together. It's kind of like for me, behind the scenes as a creator, quite a happy thing to be able to do. And I think uh, if this is very pronounced in Impossible Lens, I think for Tianxia, which has like a huge ton of writers and creators yeah. behind there, uh, it was even far more pronounced than that. But I think Impossible Lens is where I sort of like uh, had my eyes open and got a sense of affinity across different uh, different time zones, different continents to, to create something together. And that was that's something quite fulfilling and fun for myself. That's Amazing. awesome. Quite lovely, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Are there any other projects or other things that you're working on that you can talk about that you want to talk about? Yeah, like basically since the NDA for the Tinsia is like relaxed because the announcement has been made, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's like, okay, like, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can wipe the sweat <laughs> off your brow and like, you can, like, uh, I, I was joking about it because there's this gentleman, I think, uh, Wax, Joaquin Savandra, he also works on Tinsia as well. He, he's the, he's the Filipino uh, creator who created this game, Gubat Banwa. It's kind mm-hmm, of a yes, 4E yeah. style, Southeast Asia, pre-colonial fighting, a kind of a war game, uh, martial arts kind of war game. And uh, we were at a writers' festival last year in Singapore here, and then we were like, uh, people in the audience asked, "Are there anything you can talk about?" I looked at him, he looked at me, and then we're like, uh, "I said like a, uh, we, we were joking about oh, be careful with the red dots and I hit the sniper rifles are aiming." So NDAs are looking at you now. So like a, uh, but yeah, the Tianxia because he's 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 also been announced to be a writer in there, so that's the exactly the thing that we were worried about talking about. And I mm-hmm. think that's something I'm quite excited about because. Uh, it's nearly here. It's like we're, we're, we're halfway through, right now we're halfway through 2023 and it's supposed to be coming out in Q1 2024. So I'm quite excited about that because I think, Naval, you asked about like a player facing, uh, like, you know, like experience with feats, everything. I think yeah. whatever experience I picked up in Impossible Lands, I think I got the chance to hone it and practice a little bit more inside the TNCR place. And I hope that uh, it goes well trigger brand yeah. is like waving at me at the back hey yeah i'm like i'm, I'm still love right there <laughs> yes yes and i think that's something i can talk about and also the adventure path the adventure mm-hmm. path for the teens uh related things the season of ghosts so yeah. i wrote some things for those and also have a little bit of things to do in quite a few of the things in there and so that's something that i'm quite excited to look at as well because adventure paths is where a lot of people interact with games a lot more even than the thick hardcover books because they're so yeah. much more accessible and uh, people try them on seasonal subscriptions. So I'm quite excited to see what we'll see from the adventure. Yeah. That's also my first 
adventure path are more connected to because the Tiangsi one for Ruby Phoenix was uh, more of an appendix at the end. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm really excited for that for that book and I know it's going to be massive, but I think that it's important that it's big just from like knowing the brief history on how it was written before and I'm friends with Daniel Kwan from Asians Represent and yeah. like, we've had a discussion about like how just like everything is just like a mismatch in in the way that it was written before. Um and so I think it's important when you have so many different like cultural backgrounds represented to have to take the time to be like yeah, we're actually going to like take the time to separate these things into where they should be and do them well. And, and yeah, I think I'm very excited. I think Impossible Lands, Moege Expanse, obviously, and Tian Chao are going to be just, they're such important books for the landscape of Pathfinder 2E. So I'm yeah. very happy that we're getting more of that. Yeah, so I'm really happy to hear and to all be on the podcast today because uh, I did kind of like, I think that Impossible Lens is like has a bit of a nice spot in my head because it's the first time that I kind of wrote so much for Faisal book. It's like mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a huge part of the book. It's like uh, the first, the first, the first when you open the book and you go into like the sections and that's my stuff. So I do feel a little bit like you know like internet naked. Like, oh no, it's like you know it's like I'm I'm right there. It's like you know like a, <laughs> if the book sucks, it's like if I can start woohoo. <laughs> it's like, so it's like yeah. uh, and that that that's a bit of an in joke because my my the monster that I wrote for Bis- the battery tree, the abandoned uh zealot uh, kind of monster, the apostasy wraith creature was also the first one. So I was like, eh, like you know, stop picking <laughs> things to start with A. It's like you know, people look at it and that's the first thing they see. So yeah. uh and I'm glad that you're focusing on Impossible Lens with like the last few uh podcasts and this one as well because I do feel that uh, a lot of like of my compatriots put a lot of work and heart and soul into it. So I'm very happy for the shout out and for the strengthening of signal, the signal boost that you're giving for us here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, we are we are very happy to have you on and and to talk more about this book and get get the insider scoop. So yeah, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Where can people follow you online if they would like to find you and your work? Okay, so you can uh, basically find me on, I am most commonly on Twitter on as for as long as it still exists. It's, uh, this, 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 this joke has been going on for a while now. We're not sure <laughs> right. how it goes. Right? Yeah. So, uh, and you can just find me at Tan Xiao Han. So that's my name, uh, T-A-N-S-H-A-O-H-A-N. There's no underscores or no spacing. And you can also look for me on my website, which has, which should be updated. But I'm not updated in a while. I think my my spouse is giving me the. I thought you would update your website look right now in the corner <laughs> of the room. All right, so uh, that that's also the same www.tanshahan.com. Yeah, you can find me on both those places. Awesome, amazing. Well, yeah, if you would like to follow me on social media, I'm in most places as Navar S N P. That's N A V A A R S N P. Check it out. See the other stuff I'm working on. If you'd like to follow me on social media, I am everywhere at Dungeon Minister. And importantly, if you want to follow No Direction on social media, we are at No Direction on Twitter and YouTube and Mastodon as well. And you can come join our Discord server where we talk about episodes of this show and other network shows and just Pathfinder and TTRPGs in general. It's a really good time. You are so welcome to join and we'd love to have you there. Until next time, this has been No Direction. Thanks so much for tuning in. 